Welcome back for episode 35 in our study of the book of Revelation. This episode is called The Three Messengers. I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who's teaching us about the book of Revelation by relating it to the Latter-day Saint temple experience. In our most recent episodes, we find ourselves in the wilderness where Lucifer, the so-called prince of this world, tries to win us over with his fake promises of wealth and power. But then the scene changes. Right. There's a sudden scene change. Okay. Like in a film. Right. Right. Chapter 14 starts, and we suddenly find ourselves in heaven. Do you read for us chapter 14, verse 1? Sure. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So we're transported to heaven, where we see Jesus surrounded by 144,000. The fact that these men have the Father's name engraved on their foreheads tells us that they are holders of the priesthood. Why do I say that? Because in ancient times, the high priest of Israel wore a gold plate on his forehead that was engraved with the name of God. The name of God on the forehead is a token of priesthood. To wear the Father's name on the forehead is to receive the priesthood. And if you look at that, uh, look at uh, Exodus 28, you'll see that. And Abraham chapter 1, you'll see that. But remember that this is all symbolic. Remind us why there are 144,000 priesthood holders. Why that number? Back in the fourth chapter of Revelation, we talked about this. We learned that there were 24 quorums of priesthood in the Jerusalem temple, right? And also, John sees 24 quorums of priesthood surrounding the throne of God, right, Hmm. in his vision. Now, in an earlier episode, we also learned that Roman legions, their armies, were made up of 6,000 soldiers. So for John, in his time, an army of 24 times 6,000 would add up to what? 144,000. Right. So this is an army of priesthood. Okay, so now we have an interesting picture. Remember that Satan also has an army of followers who wear the mark of the beast in their foreheads. So you see you have two armies. Counterfeit. Yeah, two armies. Yeah. Satan's counterfeit army with the mark of the beast in their foreheads, and now you also have the uh, priesthood army with the, with the name of God engraved in their foreheads, opposing them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, pay close attention here. This very brief scene in chapter 14, this very brief scene in heaven, is actually the most critical part of our story. Everything hinges on what happens here. Why do you say that? Because we've come to the heart of the story of Revelation. The book is half over. Now, in ancient Greek drama, which Revelation is based on, there's typically a crisis at the center of the plot, right in the middle of the plot. We make a key discovery, which is often a revelation of some kind, the revelation of a sign or a token that radically changes the characters' lives. For example, in one famous Greek play, Oedipus the King, the main character enjoys good fortune until he discovers the reason for scars on his ankles. And that revelation, if you want to know what it's about, you have to read the play. I'm not going to go into it. But that revelation ruins his life. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
from then on, the play goes downhill. It's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. Yeah. yeah. Now, Aristotle noticed that. He noticed that there was always a reversal of fortune in the middle of a play. And he called this reversal of fortune peripeteia, which in Greek would mean a U-turn. Mm-hmm. We're making a U-turn here. Right. Oedipus's discovery occurs in the middle of the play, after which the story rolls downward to an inescapable conclusion. Mm-hmm. Okay? The same thing happens in Revelation 14. At this halfway point in the book, God turns the tables on Satan, okay, by intervening in the lives of the posterity of Adam and Eve. The down road suddenly turns upward. From now on, the power of Christ will grow until his kingdom fills the earth instead of Satan's, okay? The 144,000 representatives of the Lord now enter the field against those marked by the beast. This is all spiritual, Okay, like the lamb's blood on the doorposts in Exodus, um, the token on the forehead identifies who belongs to whom, right? Identifies the bearer of the name of God as an authorized messenger of the Lord. So this is a pivotal event in Revelation. These authorized messengers, the 144,000, are the endowed missionary force of the church, according to Elder Orson Hyde who taught in a discourse clear back in 1847, (laughs) he taught this. The 144,000 have received their washings and anointings in the temple of God on this earth. They have been chosen, ordained, and anointed kings and priests to reign as such in the resurrection of the just. According to BYU professor Michael Wilcox, he says this, quote, they have lived the law of chastity, keeping all their desires within the boundaries established by God. They have lived the law of obedience, as indicated by their willingness to follow the Lamb in all things. They have applied the law of the gospel in their lives, thus appealing to the cleansing power of the atonement and receiving his redeeming benefits. So notice the covenants there the covenant of chastity, the covenant of obedience, the law of the gospel. So to begin this work of reclaiming the posterity of Adam and Eve, the Lamb in heaven now sends three messengers to give them further instructions and to face off against the dragon and his two beasts. Okay, So it's three against three. It's the three messengers against Satan and his two pals, the, the land beast and the sea beast, okay? So the, on the one hand, there's the three angel, angelic messengers, and on the other hand, there's the three demons, okay? So uh, it's three against three, and we'll see. Uh, the task of the three messengers is to restore the gospel to them that dwell on the earth. Could you uh, read for us Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7? Sure. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So here comes an angel. But what is an angel? The Greek word for messenger is angelos. 
from which we get our word angel. So, an angel has a certain function to deliver a message from heaven. An angel is a messenger. So the first angel messenger in chapter 14 comes to teach the everlasting gospel to the world before the hour of judgment. The Lord told Joseph Smith, quote, that these things might be known among you, O inhabitants of the earth. I have sent forth my angel flying through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, who hath appeared unto some and hath committed it unto man. That's Doctrine and Covenants 133, 36. So, who was this first angel that committed the gospel to Joseph Smith? That would be the angel Moroni. Well, yeah, Moroni, who introduced himself as, quote, a messenger from the presence of God, did fulfill this role of restoring the gospel back to the earth after it had been lost, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in chapter 14, two more angels show up, okay? So there's three of them. Together, the three confront Satan's false trinity with true priesthood keys. Three heavenly messengers often appear in ancient scriptures, right? For example, in the, uh, in the Apocalypse of Adam, Adam says, quote, I saw three men before me of surpassing glory who announced that Christ would come from you and from Eve, your wife. The three strangers also reveal to Adam that his origin was from above, and they also tell him the story of salvation, just like the three messengers in the temple. That's, that's in the uh, apocryphal work, the Apocalypse of Adam. Now, likewise, the holy men who visited Abraham, remember he was visited by three holy men, Yeah, uh, they delivered Lot from the evils of Sodom. Uh, interestingly in, enough, in the Testament of Abraham, which is another apocryphal work, uh, we find out that the chief of the three angels is Michael, oh, wow. who is the presiding high priest. So the three angels then call down fire and brimstone on the wicked cities. The notion of three messengers is very important. Okay, uh, even, even in this dispensation, Joseph Smith received the keys of the higher priesthood from three messengers, right? Peter, James, and John. And in Revelation 14, three messengers arrive to filter the righteous out from the wicked. So the three messengers are a pattern in the scriptures. It seems like there are always three messengers. Well, it's a typical pattern, probably related to the law of God, that three witnesses establish the truth of a testimony. Interestingly, many of the apocalyptic writings that have been found recently contain accounts of a visit of three messengers from heaven. It's pretty common. Mm. In the book of Revelation, each messenger has his own function. The second messenger proclaims the end of the sea beast's dominion, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, the fall of Babylon announced here is not just an event, it's an eternal process, it's an eternal truth, or as well as a particular event. Babylon is always falling in the sense that wickedness prevails there, but the Babylon system eventually collapses, right? When the Lord puts an end to Satan's dominion. When the angel says Babylon is fallen, he's not speaking in the past tense. In Greek, he uses a what's called a prophetic perfect tense, 
that applies to events so certain to take place that it is as if they have already happened. Now, what about the third angel? What does he do? The third angel messenger warns those who have the mark of the beast, saying with a loud voice, quote, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. That's uh, verses 8 and 9 in chapter 14. Now remember, the mark of the beast is a token of a covenant with Satan. So we're talking about pretty wicked people here, right? Mm -hmm. So the three messengers... They bring further light and knowledge from Father. Theologian Jacques Ellieve says this, quote, Their mission is the declaration of a choice. The obligation to decide is placed before man. It is necessary either to receive the eternal gospel and be associated with it, or to enter into communion with Babylon. Oh, wow. That's why this scene <clears throat> is so crucial. Okay? This scene is so crucial because it represents the final hinge point for the human family, and for each individual. This is the fork in the road. Your decision now is crucial. Adam and Eve, you have to decide. Okay. So the angel makes a promise to those who choose righteousness. Would you read chapter 14, verses 12 and 13? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. That is beautiful. Remember that we are each Adam and Eve. Adam or Eve. Okay. The messenger of God, the three messengers, if you will, give us a choice. And everything depends on what we choose. Now, fortunately, in the temple, Adam and Eve choose wisely. Yeah, and I want to choose wisely as well. <laughs> Follow their lead. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for your time.